Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. Let me say, first of all, I love Foothills Church. This is an awesome place. I'm going to talk more about that a little bit later, but I'm going to jump right into the scripture. The scripture is, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, Psalm 33, 12. Is that true? Yes, it's true. If that's true, the converse would be true. Cursed is the nation whose God is not the Lord. There was a time when I was a college senior, right after the Noah's flood, there was a time when on secular stations in the university I went, in that town where I attended university, I don't know if it was ABC, NBC, or CBS, that's all we had back then, on one of those secular stations, at 6 o'clock each evening as the news would end, on that station would come, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Can you imagine a station doing that today? What has happened? Well, I have a privilege of speaking for pastor's conference, so I ask the question, how many of you pastor a community where in which your community is more righteous than it was 25 years ago? I've never had a pastor raise a hand. How is that possible? Christians understand that the Bible speaks to the personal issues of life. They get that. They understand the Bible speaks to the family issues of life. They get that. Christians understand the Bible speaks to the church life issues, organizational structure of how a church is supposed to function. But I would contend that probably 99% of Christians do not understand the Bible speaks with clarity to the issues of civil governance, how a government is supposed to function to bless the people. Why is that? strange is because God established nations. He invented government. In fact, to the extent that a nation will follow biblical principles, to that same extent that nation will reduce human pain, suffering, and poverty. To the extent that a nation violates biblical principles of governance, to that extent that nation will increase enormously human pain, suffering, and poverty. Show me a nation that can't feed its people, that doesn't have fresh water, I'll show you a country that is violating biblical principles and its people are suffering. What is going on in America? What has transpired these last few years? These last two and a half years have been astounding. What is taking place in our midst? I'm going to give three kind of negative things, then we'll move to a more positive thing in a moment. Bear with me while I move through the negative things. The number one problem in America is silent pulpits and silent pews. This does not apply to Foothills Church. Praise God, it does not. The very fact that you had candidates on this platform, way to go. Thank you for doing that and honoring those who are willing to run for office. That is good. You'd be shocked at the number of pastors in America who would not even do that. I looked at your schedule. September 26th, you're having a town hall meeting. Way to go, Foothills, for putting that together. I looked at your schedule. October 16th. You're having a ballot breakdown. Come to those two events. This church is way ahead of 99% of churches in America by doing the kind of events, the three things I just referred to. That's a church that is distinctly biblical in its understanding of its involvement in the life of the community. Silent pastors, let me make my case. George Barna, most quoted living Christian in the world, Says in a survey a number of years ago, the first part's going to be good, 90% of pastors agree the Bible speaks to the social and cultural issues of the day. That's good. 
But in that same survey, when asked, will you, pastor, speak out on those social and cultural issues that the Bible speaks to, 90% said no, they would not. 364,000 places of worship in America. 20% of those are outside the Christian context. So that would be a Jewish synagogue or Hindu, Buddhist, Sikh, Muslim. So we move around 20,000 out in that category. That drops us to 344,000. I don't know the, the, the status and the research in the Catholic Church, so I'm going to move 20,000 Catholic churches out. That brings us to 324,000 Protestant places of worship in America. How many of those are not Bible teaching, Bible believing? The answer is 72%. That brings us to 28% that are. That's about 100,000 churches. <clears throat> of those 100,000 churches, how many of those have a distinctly biblical worldview based upon the eight characteristics of what it means to have a biblical worldview? The fact is we don't really know for sure. It's probably around 15,000. Now, flying in the face of that is a church like Foothills that's willing to stand. And I take my time to tell you how proud I am of this place, that you stand. You're not the norm. You're an outlier, but you're right in the epicenter of how a church is supposed to function. And I want to just take a moment specifically to ask uh, Pastor Dave and Pastor Mark to come up here, if you would. Join me up here, as I want to... <clears throat> the, uh, I have two plaques. We, we did a conference in Washington, D.C., our Ministry Future Conference, and most pastors, many pastors could not make it there, but we had these plaques here, and so I said, I'm going to get the chance to present them to them. If you'll hold this, David and, and Mark. Hold them up. I want to. I'm going to pose for a picture. My wife's going. Tell me, you get some good pictures of us here. Uh, I'll, okay, okay. I'll be glad to. Wherever. <laughs> Stay right here for a second. It's called the Barnabas Award. It's called Barnabas. These guys are encouragers. I've. I've I don't know how many times I've talked to them over the 23 years that I pastored Skyline. Called them, sometimes asked their advice without them even knowing I was asking their advice. <laughs> there was a, a time I was at a basketball game, and uh, you were sitting about four or five rows in front of me to the, my left. You came running up. You sat beside me. You said, what are you doing? I said, well, we've launched a ministry in Congress, and we're trying to launch one in the United Nations. The United Nations is a tough place. It's not a good place. We're trying to see if we can take in the, the message of, of the Bible there. And he said, really? We want to be a part of that. You came back to this church. You told them what Skyline was doing. You took up an offering, spontaneous offering, and you gave us $35,000 to help launch that. I'm not trying to be critical of others, but nobody else talked to me that way. Nobody else did that. You guys. I come from a tradition theologically where there's a word we use a lot, it's the word sanctification. It's historically and theologically very significant in the movements that I've been a part of. But when I look at certain lives, you guys, I, I, I would contend you're two of the most sanctified pastors I've ever been around in my life. 
I so respect you. Oh, we love you, man. I love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. Praise God for you guys. Oh, man. Yeah, you can put her back here. I'll give it to you tonight. <laughs> okay. Well, Mark, 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 I'm going to keep mine here because I want him to present it to me again. <laughs> and by the way, uh, I forgot to let the junior hires go. Junior hires, you can go. Sorry. Uh, but uh, the 9th and 10th graders just stay here. I had a pastor say to me one day, Jim, I'm not political like you. I, pre I just preach Jesus. Well, that sounds good. I said to him, sir, I, I preach Jesus. I give people the opportunity to receive Christ virtually every time I preach. But I don't just preach Jesus. I preach what Jesus preached. What did he preach? He preached the kingdom. What does a kingdom have? A king. What is a king over? Everything. Everything, including the political, the governmental realm. We don't back away from that. Now, not only is the pew... Is the, is the pulpit silent, but in so many churches, the pew is silent. That's backed up by enormous research done again by George Barna. And he asked, why are you silent? I thought laymen would say, we're silent because we're afraid. We're afraid of being accused of being homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, some phobic. That's what I thought they'd say. They did not. Instead, what they said was, we don't speak out on the issues because we do not know what to say. Something exploded in my heart the moment I read that. And so I wrote a book called Well-Versed. Many of you have it. It lays out the biblical foundations to 30 political topics. The Bible doesn't speak just about abortion and marriage. It, it covers minimum wage, social security, health care, welfare. You name it, God already thought of it. He's smarter than we are. He didn't write the book and go, man, I forgot that whole government thing. And so we tried to lay them out. We have it in, in Spanish as well. I do not make my income off of this. We sell it at our cost, our hard cost, because we're trying to save the republic. If you'll buy it by the case, we sell it at our hard cost. And if you'll, if you'll, if you'll get a case of this, or if you'll, get a quantity, if you'll get a dozen of them, I want to give you my book on heaven and the afterlife. I wrote two books on that one. If you'll buy a case of 20 of them, well, we put the price as low as we possibly can, just to cover our cost. I want to give you a, two books in one. This is two books I wrote on heaven and the afterlife put in one called the Heaven and the Afterlife Collection. We have them available back there for you. Uh, bring the QR code up on the screen if you would. Grab your camera, take a picture of that, and if you'll shoot a picture of that right now with your phone, you can get it on Kindle, you can get it audio books, any, any way you can. Our goal is to help people when they go into the voting booth to take Jesus with them. So our first challenge is the whole phenomenon of silent pastors and silent pews. Not foothills, but many of them. Let's go to the second challenge. The second challenge is a wrong view of history. Many of you have heard the phrase separation of church and state. That's not in the Declaration of Independence, which is our birth certificate as a nation. It's not in the U.S. Constitution. Where does it come from? The writings of Thomas Jefferson, January the 1st, 1802, when he wrote to the Danbury Baptist in Connecticut, who were afraid the federal government would intrude upon the life of the church, they wrote to the newly elected president, Thomas Jefferson, and was concerned, and he wrote back and said, no, we can't, the government can't come into the church because there is a wall of separation between the government to tell the church what to do. We can't do that. What he did not say was that the church or religion cannot come into the government or to the public square. The reason we know he didn't believe that or even write such a thing was because he, while president, would get on his horse, 
ride down Pennsylvania Avenue with his Bible tucked under his arm and go to the Capitol on Sunday mornings where there were Christian preaching and worship services in the U.S. Capitol building every Sunday from 1800 to 1869. It was probably the largest church in the nation. It's probably one of the few mega churches in the nation was at that particular time. The rotunda had not been built, but the Senate wing and the House wing were built, and it was in Statuary Hall over on the House side. They had the weekly worship services where the worship was done by the Marine Corps band, mind you. And there's another thing that has been a myth, a cultural myth in America we need to bring down. And that is what happened on July the 2nd, 1954. Lyndon Baines Johnson, then senator from Texas, before he was president, was returning to Washington, D.C., very angry at two businessmen who had opposed him. One was a media mogul, the other one was an oil tycoon. And they had opposed him through their not-for-profit corporations. The IRS calls that a 501c3. So their 501c3s had been used to oppose him. He didn't like it. There was a tax overhaul going through the Senate. He stepped up and offered an amendment, now known as the Johnson Amendment. There was no discussion of it, and it was a voice vote only, so we don't even know how people voted. And it passed, and it said that no 501c3 can endorse or oppose a candidate. The chief legislative aide for Johnson said, we didn't even have churches in mind. We didn't even think of churches. We were just ticked at those two businessmen, and we wanted to get them stopped. But the IRS seized the moment. The IRS immediately seized the moment and began coming after churches, saying you cannot endorse or oppose a candidate. So attorneys contacted them and said, what does it mean to endorse or oppose a candidate? And the IRS says, we don't know. Because if a pastor says, do not vote for a pro-abortionist, but vote for a pro-lifer, is that not, if there's two people running that hold those positions, is that not a de facto endorsement or statement of opposition? The answer, of course it would be. And so, without clarification, 3,000 attorneys came together, Christian attorneys, and rallied pastors across America, thousands of us, to intentionally violate the Johnson Amendment from our pulpit, openly endorse or oppose a candidate, record the sermon, mail it to the IRS in hopes of provoking a lawsuit because the law, the Johnson Amendment, is non-constitutional. It's anti-constitutional by virtue of it being in violation of the First Amendment, where the government has no right to have any kind of pulpit police telling any pastor what they ought to say from their pulpit. But instead of getting a lawsuit, we all got little postcards back saying, thank you, we received your sermon. <laughs> now, with all those great sermons going to the IRS, somebody must have gotten saved there. Uh, I haven't seen any evidence for that yet. <laughs> so we have, first of all, silent pews and silent pulpits. Number two, a wrong understanding of history, separation of church and state. And you've had many, many people probably say to you, well, your pastor shouldn't speak out on those issues. They are historically and constitutionally in error. But let me take you a step further. Lack of the word. I'll call him Bill, not his real name. A pastor said to me one time, I pastored a large church at the time. He pastored a much larger church than mine. He stood towering over me. He was very tall. He looked down at me physically and condescendingly and said, I'm not political like you, Jim. To which I responded, Bill, my problem with you is not that you're not political. My problem with you is you're not biblical. I said, if I were a slave in the South 
1860, and my slave owner was going to go to Bill's church or Jim's church, what would I choose? I would want my slave owner to go to Jim's church because Jim will expose the sin of racism as manifested in the action of slavery and try to bring it down. But you won't because that'd be too political for you. I said, if I were the baby in the womb of a 14-year-old scared little teenage girl who lived close to Planned Parenthood, would I, as that baby, want that birth mother who's terrified to go to, to Bill's church or to Jim's church? The answer is Jim's church because I will do everything I can to save the life of that baby. In, 18, in 1843, something very significant happened that plays into this. The Wesleyan denomination was formed. I'm ordained through the Wesleyan denomination. How did they come about? 1836, in the Methodist Conference, Cincinnati, General Conference, they said, stop being so political. Don't discuss slavery. It's too controversial. You're going to upset the slave owners. You're going to make the slave owners leave our churches and take their dollars with them. We can't afford that. Don't offend them to watch a group of Methodist pastors say, we will not be silent about slavery. It's evil. It's wrong. It must be stopped. And they either were kicked out or they were forced out or walked out of the Methodist denomination. They formed the Wesleyan Church, 1843. Our churches in the South were a day's journey apart. The reason they were a day's journey apart is so they could participate in the Underground, underground Railroad, smuggling slaves out of the South into the North for the purpose of saving their lives. In fact, in one county in, in, in South Carolina, they hung McCajun McPherson, a Wesleyan. And they had an expression there. The expression was, we need this rope to hang another Wesleyan. We still have Freedom's Chapel from that part of the country, bullet holes in the side of it. We still have the door from the church in Laoto, Indiana, bullet holes in the side of it. Because we were willing to be biblical. Let me ask you this question, Bill, I said. Were they political or were they biblical? The answer is they were biblical, but you would have called them political. Or what about women? Women were treated like property. They couldn't even vote. The first Women's Right to Vote conference was held in a Wesleyan church in 1848, Seneca Falls, New York. The pastor was accused of being political for hosting such an event. But was he? No, he was being biblical. My friend Senator James Langford once said, that every book in the Old Testament is written to government, about government, for government, by government, in some way tied to government. I, I texted him. I said, James, can I, can I quote you on that? He said, yes. Only he says, I think at least 37 of the 39 books of the Old Testament. So I went to Frank Kaser, who's on our team at Wellverse. I said, go through every book of the Bible and see which ones refer to government in some form, in some way. He came back to me and said, Jim, all 66 books refer to government. Now, you just had a group of candidates stand on this platform. They're going to be out, outside. I want you to take the time to stop and greet them. Stop by there and meet them and greet them. By the way, we have these books available back there. Last, last night, we went back there to the book table, and nobody showed up to look at the books. I thought, this never happened. Foothills people must not like books. I went out and discovered everybody was eating ice cream out in the... <laughs> I wanted to be out with them. <laughs> there, there's no ice cream today, folks. Meet me at the book table. But... I want you to make sure you stop by and encourage these candidates. Pray over them. See if you can support them financially. Get their yard signs. Bless them. See if you go door knocking for them. Do whatever you can. It takes tremendous courage and guts to run for office. And pray for those in authority. Pray for those who are elected. Now, if you cannot name your two senators, your representative, your mayor, which obviously you can name, 
or your state senator or your state assembly person, if you can't name them, you're probably not praying for them. You at least need to know their names to be able to pray for them. Some people will say, well, wait a minute. Jim, you're sounding like we can stand against government sometimes. Doesn't the scripture say, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities? Romans 13, Paul wrote. Yes, it does. Well, we go to the next verse. It says, for he is God's minister to you for good. The word there in the original language is diakonos. It says we're to be subject to government, but the government is supposed to be the diakonos of God, the minister of God, the servant of God. The purpose of government is, government is to protect the citizenry. The purpose of government is to punish evil and to reward good. If a government is functioning properly, it will be the servant of God. It won't go against God's ways. Are we to be subjective to the government? Absolutely. When it's going exactly the way that God intended and ordained it to be. Now, if you are a in a, a monarchy, you can't do much about the government. If you're in an oligarchy, you can't do much about the government, but you're not. You're in a constitutional republic that votes democratically. That means the government is we the people. That means we the people are the ones that are to enforce and to make certain that the government functions for the purpose for which God ordained government to be in existence. In fact, the word ecclesia that occurs three times in Acts chapter 19 doesn't merely mean church called out ones, set apart ones. It means those who are called out to exercise legislative authority in the life of their community. Ben Franklin wanted the logo, the, 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 the logo for the, our, our nation to be, quote, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Thomas Jefferson used that as his personal seal. Our ministry is called Well-Versed. We have the privilege of ministering to in members of Congress and at the United Nations. Uh, and we, we went with the United Nations. We're a small ministry. We're not, we're not a large ministry. I'm not going to spin it, make it sound bigger than it is. We're not a large ministry at all. But we have had the privilege, thanks to your support, you support us, had the privilege of meeting with 93 of the 193 ambassadors at the United Nations. Before COVID, we actually had weekly Bible studies there in the Secretariat in New York City and weekly studies in Congress. Now, since COVID, the buildings are still locked down. Your church was involved in that first $35,000 gift, which was so stunning to me. And then you monthly support our ministry. I'm reporting to you as your ambassador, saying thank you for that. But there was another thing that's unique about this church. When I was going to the United Nations, Rosemary and I were going to the United Nations trying to understand. By the way, I didn't introduce my wife. Rosemary, stand up, would you please? Um, she's been to Israel 71 times. Today is New Year's on, the, on God's calendar. Happy Rosh Hashanah. And we have calendars available back there that will put you on the biblical calendar. It has also the Gregorian, the one we use, but it has the biblical calendar, and they're available back there as well. Rosemary can answer all kinds of questions about how powerful this particular day is in the Jewish calendar. But we went back to the United Nations for the first time to get ourselves kind of oriented. I got calls from a couple of people, Chris George and Mike LeBon. Can we bring our wives, Debbie and Julie, and come back with us? And you came, Mike, do you remember? Raise your hand, Mike and Julie. You guys came with us. And we, we were still floundering. We were still trying to find our way. And we met with one person after another that coached me, teach me. Your church even sent four ambassadors from the church to be with us, four representatives, 
when we opened our work at the United Nations. I am so grateful to you, Foothills, for your involvement. Now, because of that, it's opened the door for us to, get, to begin to meet with some heads of state. I don't have the contact or the clouts to be able to get to presidents and prime ministers and kings. But other people have opened the door for us to go in small delegations, and we've had the privilege of meeting with some. The reason I'm telling you this is I want to encourage you of a couple things. I want to encourage you to take time to phone elected officials as high as you can go. And, and local is fine. Local is important. All politics is ultimately local. And, and, and make a lunch appointment or coffee or meet them somewhere or go to their office or invite them to your place and pray over them. Just pray over them. They may be people hostile to your views. Go pray over them the blessings of the Lord because the blessings of the Lord, you're declaring his will, his word, his way over them. I want to encourage you to form relationships with even the ones that seem hostile to your values. It's hard for them to hate you when they like you. And so form those relationships and especially encourage those who are willing to stand for biblical principles like the ones we had on the platform just a moment ago. But also learn to work with those who may not be regenerate, not filled with the Spirit, not walking with Jesus, and yet God has placed them, and they actually still operate on kingdom principles, even if they're not personally within the kingdom. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you have, to be, you have to be savvy and learn to work with those that can still carry on biblical principles and governance, though they may not be, quote, one of us. We have the privilege of meeting with the, with the president of Egypt, Assisi. He's a Muslim. But here he is trying to stop, praise God, the Muslim Brotherhood, put a stop to their evil actions. And he is rebuilding, helping rebuild the Christian churches, the Coptic churches that have been burned down by the Muslims. He helped dedicate the largest Christian worship service, uh, worship facility in the Middle East not too long ago. Kurdistan. Kurdistan's an unusual one. It's a Muslim leader, Barzoni, prime minister. They're a country without a country. They're spread over four countries. They're kind of a people without a country. They love America. They loved Donald Trump. They loved Benjamin Netanyahu. They love Israel. They love the Jews. Why? Why are these Muslims that love the Jews? Because they so admire them that after a couple thousand years, they were able to get their own nation. The Kurds want their own nation. The Kurdistan is a very interesting group. And then Jordan, the king of Jordan, used to be at war with Israel. Now they're at peace with Israel. Or Benjamin Netanyahu, other than his handling of the COVID crisis, everything else he did brilliantly. One of the most incredible leaders I've ever been around. I had the privilege of meeting with him three different times. Honduras, this one's a more painful one. Hernandez, since going out of office, he's been charged with serious, serious crimes. I don't know if they're true or not. I continue still to pray for this man. Brazil, I want you to pray for Bolsonaro. Jair Bolsonaro, incredible story. While he was running for office the first time, he was stabbed. He's had a lot of surgeries because of that stabbing. He had to run his campaign from a hospital bed by his cell phone, and he won. The backstory is he was in Israel. He's a Catholic. His wife's an evangelical Christian. They were in Israel. He was baptized in the Jordan River. He came up out of the river. As he came out of it, he heard the voice of the Lord say, you're going to be the next president of Brazil. And sure enough, he was. Now, that picture there, he's wearing, he's wearing a Jewish tallit that one of our friends gave to him. We didn't post any pictures of him initially as we were leaving the compound because we knew that may not be good for him to be identified with us. Within a few seconds, he posted the pictures, and he had 634,000 likes in the first 24 hours on it. And we've been back with him a second time. I want you to pray for Bolsonaro. October 2, an incredibly important election. 
Some of the countries in, in, in South America have recently gone the wrong direction, gone towards socialism. Uh, Chile just had a good election and voted a constitution that rejected socialism, praise God. But it's been tough in a number of the countries. Brazil's half, more than half of South America. And so I, I want you to be engaged and praying for Bolsonaro in Brazil. Tune in and watch. By the way, that man takes a beating every day from the media, even worse than what Trump got from the media here. It's staggering. Guatemala, we met with Jimmy Morales. Now, he has a background. Jimmy Morales had a background very similar to Donald Trump. Uh, pretty checkered background. But God got a hold of him, and he began to establish biblical principles. The guy who since followed him, Cheo Mate, he, he's a man who likewise, go to the next picture, he doesn't have he doesn't have our value structure as such. He's not one of us. And yet, he is fiercely committed to biblical principles of governance. God has used him so much so. Let me tell you, if a nation stands for life in the womb, and a nation stands for one man, one woman marriage, the United States State Department is so corrupted, it will put enormous pressure on that country. It'll strip them of financial aid. It'll strip them of military help and assistance, and even does some worse things that I won't even go into. Simply say, for a country to stand, a little country, to stand for life in the womb, like Guatemala does, and for one man, one woman marriage, as Guatemala does, they pay a severe price. The pressure is staggering on them. And I said to him, when the Vice President Kamala Harris comes, do not buckle under the pressure that she's going to bring. He looked back at me and through a translator, he said, be assured, we will not. And they did not. And they're standing. I need you to pray for this country, for Guatemala, Mate. Remember to pray for him as he continues to lead in that direction. Bolivia, this is a painful story. It starts good, but it ends hard. This story, the socialists were defying term limits and the socialist dictator. But people went to the streets and started praying. So it was a tiny group at first. Pretty soon it was a million and a half in the streets. And one guy named Camacho said, I'm going to fly up to La Paz, to the capital. Camacho, I was going to fly up there. I'm going to take a Bible under one arm. He's a Catholic man. He said, I'm going to take a paper under the other arm. And I'm going to, paper's going to be for that dictator to sign his resignation and leave town. His dad pled with him, don't do that. They'll kill you. And sure enough, they had a torture planned for him, waiting for him. He flew up there. His entourage was all nervous. They couldn't sleep that night. He fell asleep, slept like a baby. He says, no, it's in God's hand. He got up the next morning to go to the palace. And when he got there, the dictator had fled during the night and left the country, along with his number two man, his number three man, his number four man, his number five man in succession. So succession of the presidency went to the sixth person. That sixth person was a senator, Janine Añez. She became president, godly woman, evangelical Pastor for as a brother, and she ruled for about a year, and the communists or the socialists rather came back in, took control, threw her in prison where she is to this day. We've tried to call attention to this. This woman almost died in prison not long ago. She doesn't look like that right now, if you were to see her. They took her to trial recently, sentenced her to 10 years, made up charges, 10 years in prison. I'm asking you to join with me and pray for a miraculous release from prison for Janine Añez in, in Bolivia. And Hungary, I would contend that this is the most biblically grounded government in, in the, of the 193 nations of the world. Number two would be Guatemala. I've never met Victor Orban in person, but we've been twice where he has spoken in a small group. 
Tristan Asbez is a friend of ours. He is the state secretary. You know what his assignment is? Listen to this. The country's only got 10 million people, so it's not a large country. We have 330 million in the U.S. They only have 10 million people. But his assignment is to find wherever Christians are being persecuted and rescue them, save them. 80% of the world's population, 80% of the world's population is in religiously persecuted territory. 80% of those are Christian. And he is to find Christians and save their lives. Uh, one small nation is the only nation in the world that has someone almost at a cabinet level position to do that. On top of that, you've heard about the demographic winter. The birth rate is too low in Western Europe. You have to have 2.1 babies per couple to maintain because certain die in youth. And so you have to have 2.1 babies per couple just to maintain your population. If you don't maintain your population, you lose prosperity very quick and you have all kinds of sociological problems. Well, across all of Europe, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and now the US, the population is way too small. It's not large enough. And, and they're saying, we're not gonna allow that. Across Europe, a, a, a couple will have one or two baby, one baby, and then the Muslim comes and has eight kids. And they said, we're not gonna allow the Islamization of Hungary. They said, we're not gonna permit that. You come into our country, you're gonna come with Christian values. We are an unabashed nation committed to Christian principles. And secondly, we want children we want families healthy, so we're going to help you. Young couples, it's expensive to get started. We know it. So if you'll get married and have two babies, we're going to wipe out one half of your student debt. If you'll have three babies, we'll wipe out all your student debt. We're going to help you if you'll get married and get married first, have babies second. We're going to help you buy your house. If you'll get married and have babies, we're going to buy you a van if you'll fill the van with babies. Some of you young couples are wanting to move to Budapest right now. <laughs> we go to Ukraine. I've never met with President Zelensky in person. I was supposed to last September 8th, a year ago, uh, and it was to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the overthrow of communism. Who knew that communism would come back on him again? But the man in the middle, Pavel Ungarian, is a close friend of ours, was a member of the parliament there. We had the privilege of meeting with Ivan Vanikov. He's a, he's a close friend of President Zelensky. He's head of the equivalent of their secret service a man who's committed to Christian principles. And in spite of all the challenges you see in Ukraine, let me just tell you, God is doing some amazing, miraculous things in Ukraine among the people of God there. And President Trump, I had the privilege of serving on President Trump's uh, faith advisory board for the four years and then in the campaign, both campaigns, 2016 and, and 2020. And, and I, don't, I don't defend mean tweets. I don't like them any more than anybody else does. But this man intuitively knew how to operate in the right policy his closest spiritual advisor who prays with him every single week says he has a desire to do what's right. I was with him about five or six times, and I saw that. He's a good listener. Learn to work with those people who aren't exactly like us, that are established by God remarkably to walk in biblical principles, even if they don't look or talk or act exactly like we would. We would. And also... As you work in the political governmental realm, I want to engage us more, and that is be aware, why is the family under attack? Why that one institution? How could that be? In Genesis chapter 1, God establishes the first thing he did was male and female specificity. The second thing he did was he established marriage. The third thing he did, that's Genesis 1 and 2, now we're over Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, he established procreation. Adam and Eve knew, the word is yada, knew each other intimately, physically, sexually, and they conceived, and they gave birth. So procreation, 
God established those three things. So along comes Satan, and he says, first of all, I'm going to take on the babies, and I'm going to destroy the babies through Roe v. Wade, 1973. Praise God, we all lived long enough to see the overthrow of Roe. Amazing. But now we've, we've got Proposition 1 in California. You know about Proposition 1, yes? It's murderous in our state. And what our governor, if he can be called that, is wanting to do is invite babies from the other 49 states to be shipped here. And some businesses are paying for it so they can murder the babies here in California. And the blood will run under the streets of our, of our nation, our county, and our, our country, our states in Pacific. And the result will be that blood, that innocent blood is going to cry out for vengeance. We're going to pay an extremely high price for that evil. Proposition one, you must rise up and defeat that in the election that's coming. The second thing was in the Obergefell case and Supreme Court overthrew the definition of marriage. And the third thing, in a 20, that was 2015, 2020, the Supreme Court decided a case which effectively threw away any gender, gender specificity of male versus female. Why? Why this attack upon marriage? Rosemary and I were at a conference in Paris, France, delegates from all over the world. We were discussing marriage and how to defend marriage, one man, one woman marriage. And the African delegation said, you from the U.S., you're colonizing us. This was during the Obama years. I said, how are we colonizing you? He said, you colonized us once and came in and controlled us. Now you've come in a second time and you've sexually colonized Your State Department is forcing us to affirm same-sex marriage, which we know is immoral and wrong. Your State Department is forcing, you get the picture, your State Department is forcing us to fly the rainbow flag next to our national flags. You're sexually colonizing us. Why? Why this animosity towards marriage? Homosexuality destroys marriage. Transgenderism destroys marriage. Divorce destroys marriage. Pornography destroys marriage. Pedophilia destroys marriage. And now we have academia going after marriage. We have entertainment and media attacking marriage. We have the government attacking marriage. Now businesses attacking marriage. Now even sports and entertainment attacking marriage. Half of the people who call themselves a part of the church in America are attacking marriage. Why? I want to explain to you from the standpoint of the cosmos what is taking place right now. Fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. We're going to wrap this thing up. And by the way, if, if, I'm talking as fast as I can. If you'd listen faster, I'd be done by now. But I'm doing my best I possibly can. Okay. And here we go. Is God male or female? The answer is neither. He's not androgynous either. So he's not male or female. So what is he? The writers tried to figure out how to describe him. In the writers of the Old Testament, they'll describe him as strong, masculine. But they also describe him as tender, nurture with femininity. They'll speak of his breast that feeds a, a newborn. They'll speak of a womb that gives birth. So whatever God is, it, it's the, the totality of what we think of masculinity and femininity. In fact, the word El Shaddai, one of the names for God, El, strong like a mountain. Shaddai, a breast that nourishes. Even the name El Shaddai encompasses this. So that means that no male by himself is a full expression of the full spectrum of the image of God. No female by herself is a full representation of the full spectrum of the image of God. It's only as the two complementary halves of humanity are drawn back together, that's the reason for the sexual attraction, by the way, they're coming back together, they complete each other and become a full expression of the image of God. What is the nature of God? He's a creator. What happens when male and female in covenantal marriage come together? They procreate. 
Now, the traditional view is God made Adam, capital A, then he pulled out a rib and made Eve, woman. The English may sound like that, but if you go into the Hebrew text, and by the way, what I'm sharing right now, if you have an NIV Bible or other translations, it actually has footnotes indicating exactly what I'm about to lay out for you right now. Let's walk through it. Don't think of God creating a male, pulling out a rib, and creating a female. What does the text say? Genesis 2, 7. God created Adam. It's small a, not capital A, Adam, not yet. He created small a, Adam, spelled the same as Adam, but pronounced Adam in the Hebrew. He created Adam, which means humanity. And God created humanity, and he looked at it, and he said something very unusual. Genesis 2, 19, he says, that's not good. Now, when had God ever said, that's not good, when he created something? He never had. He always said, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. And he looked at this and said, that's not good. He created Adam, humankind, says, not good. What was not good about it? One translation would say, it's as one, in no capacity for relationship. The reason why it's important is God created Adam in his image, but it doesn't have the relationship. In the Godhead itself, you have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have the capacity of a relationship within the Godhead itself. But he created Adam with no capacity of relationship. It's as one, Adam. He says in 2.19, it's not good. So in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 21 and 22, he pulls aside, it's not rib. Think of the word Tesla, like the car, only switch the S and the E around, and the T is, well, sort of silent. It'd be pronounced Tsela, Tsela. That's the word tr translated rib. It's used 40 times in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. And the other 39 is not translated rib. It's translated properly side or half. So God created Adam, humankind. That's not good. It has no capacity relationship. So he pulled a side or a half, and now we have femininity, and now we have masculinity. It's jokingly called the splitting of the atom. Now, let's go to the Hebrew. <laughs> let's go to the Hebrew right now. Bring up the Hebrew text, and I'm going to show you. Let's look at the top word, ish, man. In Hebrew, it's right to left. So it's aleph, yod, sheen. Right to left, aleph, yod, sheen, is man or ish in the Hebrew. Now, in, in woman in Hebrew is isha. At, go from the right to left. Aleph, sheen, hey. It, 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 is, it is said that Adam took one look at Eve in the garden and went, whoa, man, and it stuck. Or she took one look at him and went, ish, and it stuck. <laughs> you ladies enjoyed that one way too much. <laughs> so we have ish, man, yalif, alif, yod, sheen. There is one letter in the top line that's not in the second. What is that? Yod. There's one letter in the second line that's not in the top. What is that? Hey, think of YH, basically. Let's put those letters down in the third line by themselves, yod hey. Those are the rudimentary letters for yod hey vav hey, which means Lord or Yahweh. That appears 6,800 times in your Old Testament. In other words, right in the name of man and woman, the stamp of God's name is on that. Two men can't have that. Two women can't have that. It's only as a male and a female come together, the imprint of God, yod is upon their very name. Go to the next one. 
And the next one, here we go. Look at the upper right-hand corner. Man, there we, we take the yod from the middle and we bring it down to that little box. Let's go to the word woman and take the hay down. Follow the blue line. We put it in that little box. yod hey, vav hey. yod hey becomes the rudimentary letters of the name Yahweh or Lord. Let's go to the next one. Now we're going to review it from a different way. Look at the top. God or, or Lord. yod hey is at the top. We're reading from right to left. The small little mark is yod Picture it as Y-H. yod hey. Let's follow the yod down to the middle of the word man. There you see it again. Aleph, yod, sheen. Or let's take, go back up the word God. Look at the word hey, the letter hey, the, the second letter. Follow it down to the, the end of the word woman. Aleph, sheen, hey. But if you take God out of this, if we take yod, hey, the name of God out of man and woman, what we have, look at the bottom, is Aleph Sheen. What is that? That's the word for fire. Is fire good or bad? Well, it depends. Uh, 2003, we had fire that swept through this area, through San Diego. 2,800 homes burned down in less than four days. So fire uncontrolled is terrible. But fire properly controlled is good and wonderful. It's providing this microphone right now, the lighting, the air conditioning, the heating. You, use the, you lose the a fire to start your car to get here today. In fact, you probably had a breakfast. If you didn't, you'll have a lunch. Fire will cook the meal for you. Fire is a good thing when properly contained. In this context, fire is the sexual energy, the attraction, the power of a man and a woman within covenant marriage. That's a good and righteous thing. Outside of the covenantal marriage, the, the lust, the fire sexually, will burn the people who are involved and hurt a lot of people around them. Let's go to the next slide. Here we're repeating. At the very top is woman, isha, and you see the Hebrew letters there, and you see the blue letter. The next line is man, or ish, and you see there the Hebrew letters, and you see the green letter, yod, and we put them together at the bottom, yod hey, vav hey, the name for God, or Lord, or, or Yahweh. And as again, once again, if you remove yod hey from man and woman, at the bottom, you have ish, and that's the word for fire we talked about a moment ago. Now, if that fire is outside of covenantal marriage, that attraction, the desire of the complementary halves of humanity that were split apart when God created in Genesis 2, created Adam, he pulled aside half, Selah, and he created woman and man, that natural attraction, that healthy attraction, the desire to be the full image of God, which is only expressed when a husband and wife come together in covenantal marriage. By the way, let me just break in for a moment. There may be some single woman sitting here saying, well, wait a minute, what about me? I've never been married, or, or I'm a widow, or, or I'm divorced. I'm a functional widow. My husband abandoned me. Let me show you. The, the, God does have favors in the Scripture. Widows, orphans, and the poor. The le legitimate poor, the bona fide poor. God does have his favorites, widows, orphans, and, and the poor. And he promises to be a husband and complete that in you. I don't have time to go into that part of it for right now. But that ish, that fire within the context of marriage, that desire for the sexual attraction with each other, the physical act of intimacy, is a holy, righteous act before God in the context of covenantal marriage. When it's parametered with covenant. Now remember what I just said, when it's parametered with covenant. Let's go to the next slide. This word is covenant. 
The reading from right to left again. Berit. Berit means covenant. It's kind of interesting. Brit. British. My wife likes to point out to people. Brit, covenant, ish, man, a man who follows the covenant. So berit, berit is the covenant. Now, what if I took the right two letters and slid them apart and the left two letters and split them apart and put something in the middle? Let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> the word is berit there. You see the word covenant. Now I, I'm going to do just what I said I'm going to do. I'm going to take the right two letters and slide them to the right. I'm going to take the left two letters and slide them to the left. And in the middle, I'm going to tuck ish, or fire. So here's the fire. Here's the sexual energy between a male and a female. But put in the context of the covenant of marriage. Contracts can be broken. A covenant is eternal. And so here is the fire, the attraction. Put within the context of, 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 of covenant. And that, what is that word? That word is bereshit. By the way, everything I'm teaching you right now, I learned from three Jewish rabbis. The word is bereshit. What is that? That's in your Bible. Where is it in your Bible? It's the opening words of Genesis 1.1. Bereshit translates in the beginning. That's the opening lines of your Bible. Bereshit right there. The Jews don't call Genesis Genesis. They call it Bereshit. And the Jewish rabbi who taught me this said, Jim, the sacredness of marriage is so profound to God. The holiness of marriage. The, the, even the, the, the fire, the energy, the drawing together of a husband and wife together as one in physical, emotional, and spiritual union, when parametered in the constructs of the covenant, is so righteous and important to God, he included that in the very opening lines of the scripture itself. Marriage is sacred. It's the image of God. So if I were Satan, I'd want to destroy the image of God off the planet. That's why it's a cosmic struggle. This is not Republican versus Democrat. It's not right versus left. It's way bigger than that. It's right versus wrong. It's good versus evil. It's biblical truth versus unscriptural constructs. It's God versus Satan himself. And that's why over the entire globe, the issue of marriage is being fought right before our eyes. That's just Genesis. Genesis begins with the marriage of a man and a woman. We fly over to Revelation, and it closes with the wedding of a bride and a groom. All of history, now listen to me, we're going to the book of Revelation. We've got to wrap this up now. All of, the, all of history is going towards one event. All of history is culmination in one event, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everything's going towards one event, the marriage supper of the Lamb, a huge wedding. Now, God only has one kid. You only got one kid, you care who that kid's going to marry. And he wants that bride to be special and ready for this occasion. And so we're going for the culmination of history. So God, here's the way we picture it. This is a wrong way to picture it, by the way. We picture God looked down and says, I got to describe the closure of history. How can people understand? Okay, I see they all understand marriage down there on earth. So I'm going to borrow the metaphor of marriage so they'll understand what the history's culmination is going to be like. And I'll borrow that and I'll describe the closure of history as Jesus and the church getting married. That's the way we tend to look on. That's wrong. It's the reverse. The real marriage, capital M marriage, you have never seen yet. You've never seen a real marriage because a real marriage is the marriage of Jesus and the covenant people of God. What you've seen is small m marriage on earth. The marriages on earth are appetizer courses. They're hors d'oeuvres. They're in part established so we can comprehend what the closure of history is supposed to be like. 
Think of the best marriage you can think of. I hope it's your own. Think of the best marriage you know of. That is to be a picture of the closure of history. Why did God supply that to us? Because he knows we can't figure out what's it going to look like with Jesus and the church, Jesus and the covenant people coming together. What's that going to be like? I can't figure that out. Paul knew that when he wrote Ephesians chapter 5. He says, husband, treat your wife this way. Wives, respond this way. Husbands, wives. Husbands, wives. Then he says, I bet you think I'm talking about marriage on earth. I'm not. I'm talking about the closure of history. Jesus and the church. Jesus and the covenant of people coming together. And then he first says in verse 32, it's a mystery. Boy, it sure is. How's that? What's it going to look like? He says, I know you can't figure it out. I'm paraphrasing here. I know you can't figure it out. It's a mystery. So to help you understand it, I'm going to establish marriage on earth, God speaking, husbands and wives, so you can at least have a little kind of a grasp of what it's going to be like with that culmination of history when Jesus and the people, covenant people of God actually come together as one. But if I were Satan, I'd want to destroy that image. I'd do everything I could so you couldn't possibly have a glimpse. We, we actually even use certain, certain descriptors for the closure of it, marital bed language. We call it the consummation of history. We call it the climax of history. That's marital bed language describing the closure of history. Some people say to me, I've written two books, as I indicated, on heaven and the afterlife. Some people say, how come there's no marriage in heaven? I say, are you kidding me? Mary, heaven is marriage. That's what it is. It's one big, huge, it's the real capital M marriage like we've never seen. Some people say, well, why is there no sexual relations in heaven? Well, let me walk you through this. God gave the physical ecstasy, the joy of the physical act of marriage as a spiritual depiction of what it's going to be like to be in the presence of Jesus. Rewind. God gave, yeah, you can clap for that. God gave the ecstasy, the joy, the excitement of the physical act of marriage, sexual expression, between a husband and wife, covenantal marriage, where there is no guilt. He gave that as a depiction of the, what it's going to be like spiritually to be in the presence of Jesus. I've interviewed quite a few people who've had near-death experiences, gone to heaven, and come back. Every one of them that went there did not want to come back. And every one of them that went there had, from that point on in their life, had no fear of death. My book, Heaven and the Afterlife, is the results of interviewing a bunch of those kind of people. Every one of them, when they would just try to describe heaven, they, they would just, they were at a loss for words. They were just stunned how spectacular it is. You can't, you can't believe how wonderful this is. They said every, every leaf had light coming out of it and sound coming, every leaf of the tree, every blade of grass, every single blade of grass was just illuminated with lights coming from it and sound. He said, you won't believe the music. You won't believe the ecstasy, the joy, the delight of heaven. It was, it was beyond breathtaking. That is the spiritual reality that's depicted in the physical act of marriage. God gave those to give us a, a, a sense of what eternity's going to be like. But if I were Satan, I would try to destroy marriage in Genesis so the image of God would be wiped off the earth. If I were Satan operating in the book of Revelation, I'd try to get rid, of, get rid of the notion of what marriage actually is so the culmination of history would be obliterated from people's thinking and their understanding. Now, one might conclude that the purpose of my sermon is to kind of help you to be a political activist. Not at all. One might conclude I'm trying to get you all to be political operatives. Now, those are good. That's just not the purpose of the sermon. That would be very understimulating to me. You might think, well, he's wanting us to be good conservatives. 
Being conservative is a good thing. That, that's just not the purpose. That's not why I'm here. He may want us to be a good patriot. I, I'm a patriot, and unabashedly so, but that, that's, that, I wouldn't come across town just to try to persuade you to be a patriot, which you may already be. I've come across town because I want you to be so filled with the Word of God regarding what it says about the acts of civil governance. You're so filled, your mind is so filled, that you take Jesus into the voting booth. You take the scriptural truth into the voting booth, that you influence every person around you in, in, the, in these very same regards. And by the way, they're trying to intimidate and bully you from doing exactly that. The newest phrase is Christian nationalism. Have you heard the phrase? You're accused of being a Christian nationalist. Blow that one off. They've been doing this in the 70s. In the 70s, they called us being culture religionists, civil religionists. I could give you the history on this. Won't take the time to do that. Then they accuse us of being theocrats. We're trying to do a theocracy. I don't even know how we would do a theocracy if we had the power to do such things. Then they say, oh, you're a dominionist. You're trying to take control of us. No, we're exercising Genesis chapter 1, understanding of dominion the Bible way. These people don't even know what the words mean when they say it. Oh, now you're into the seven mountains, they say. The next thing, oh, you're part of the new American, uh, the, the new apostolic reformation. I got accused of that in an article a few days ago. I, I remember when I accused that the first time, I had to look up and see what it was. I didn't know what the NAR was. I thought maybe they mean NRA. I'm not a member of the NRA. No, it was the NAR. I had to look up and see what it was. Always an accusation. Now it's Christian nationalists. That is done for one reason, to bully and intimidate you and drive you from the public square so you will not articulate biblical values. The fact is, are your atheist friends has every right to take his atheist views in the voting booth. He wants to. Your agnostic friend, your secular friend, your Muslim friend, your communist friend, they can all go into the voting booth. <clears throat> and we too, as followers of Jesus, can take Jesus into the voting booth with us. We have every right to do that. That's why I've come. to Get the Word of God profoundly established as it relates to civil governance so you know what the truth is, you communicate that with others, because to the extent that a nation will follow the ways of God, it will reduce human pain, suffering, and poverty. But if you're not carrying Jesus within you, you're no threat to the evil one. If you're a nice little Christian patriot, that's, that's kind of cool, you can be a patriot or conservative, you are no threat to Satan until you carry Jesus and you're full of his Holy Spirit. And so I want to make sure that there's not one here that leaves this auditorium without the opportunity to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. I want to make sure you know the joy of walking with Jesus in this life and the assurance of being with him in eternity. Life is short. Eternity is long. I don't know who in this crowd is going to be the next one that steps into eternity. I have a funeral at 3 o'clock this afternoon. I'm participating in John Neal from our community, well, well known. We would have no idea a few days ago that John Neal would step into eternity at such an age way before we would have anticipated. Life is short, and it's unpredictable when it ends. And I don't want to leave here with any responsibility on my hands that someone could have been here and not been in Jesus Christ and not prepared to step into eternity and go into eternity without Christ. So I'm going to give that opportunity. If you're one who does not know beyond the shadow of a doubt that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven, then this is your moment to receive him. If you were to stand before God today, what reason would you give him why he should let you into his heaven? There's only one reason. You would point to the cross of Jesus Christ. You can't point to all the good stuff you did. You've probably done a lot of good things. That's great. You can't say, I did more good things than bad things. That doesn't cut it. 
There's only one thing that draws you into a perfect heaven. You're imperfect. There's only one thing that can make you perfect to go into to a perfect heaven. And that's when you point to the cross and say, when he died on that cross, he died from my sins. My sins were assigned to him. His righteousness was assigned to him. And that the Father will welcome you in to eternity. I want to make sure. I want to make sure everyone is prepared for that moment. Will you stand right now? No one moving around the auditorium will be done in just a moment. No one moving around. I've got to wrap this up, but I just need to care for this important thing. I'm going to pray a prayer out loud. If this describes, if this describes the desires of your own heart, I want you to pray this prayer with me in, your, in the quietness of your own heart. Here we go. Close your eyes. Bow your heads. Dear Jesus, I need you. Come into my heart. Come into my life. I repent of my sin. I turn from my sin. I ask you to make me the kind of person you want me to be. I want you for my Savior. Save me from myself and my, the garbage in my life and my failures and my shortcoming and my sin. And I need you as Lord, yes, boss of my life. I'll do it your way. I want to follow you. I want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt if I were to die today. I'm ready to face you. So come into my life. Come into my heart. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. In Jesus' name, I pray. No one looking around, all eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer with me for the purpose of receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord, just raise your hand real high. Raise your hand high and kind of wave at me. If you prayed for the purpose. Okay, all of you with your hands raised, look at me. Everybody else, keep your eyes closed. Those with your hands raised, look at me. I want all of you to come forward right now. I want you to come right now because I want the privilege of greeting you and meeting you and praying over you. If you raise your hand, come forward just right now. There will be other counselors that will come and help. Just move quickly. Come quickly. Just take your first step. If you start moving your feet, the rest of your body will follow. Come on and join us down here very quickly. Yeah, let's hear it for those as they come. Come quickly. We need the counselors. Pastor, come on up here. Pastor, come on up here. Step on up here real close to me here. Counselors, come up too. Help us out here. The decision you're making is absolutely the most important decision of your life. I don't know what all is going on in your life. I don't know what all you've been through. Probably the answer is probably a lot. But there's something that tugged you here. That tug has a name. It's called the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. How old are you? 16. 16. you got a whole life ahead of you. Way to go. Way to go. That's awesome. I'm so proud of you. Regardless of your age, you're coming to the right place at the right time. I want to pray a prayer of blessing over you. And we'll ask, you have counselors, I believe, and I'm going to turn it to Pastor Dave here. But I cannot tell you what this means to me to be here with you in this moment. You bless me. I'm your cheerleader. And around you are hundreds, several thousand cheerleaders wanting to see you succeed spiritually. Yes, I cried too. I understand those tears. God sees those tears. He sees what's going through you. He knows what's in your heart. I bless those tears. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for each one of these. They've come with a hunger to know you. Every one of them have a story. There's a story of probably a lot of pain, some suffering, probably some good things, some glorious things, some wonderful things, but also some wounds that are pretty deep. And they're running to Jesus. They recognize the sin, the failures, the shortcomings in their own lives. And they're saying, Jesus, I need you, I need you. When you died on the cross, you died for my sins. I want forgiveness for all the junk in my life. I want to walk in the fullness of what you have. I want to be victorious in Jesus. Now, Lord, I pray supernatural protection over each one of these and the way the enemy will try to attack them in the next 24 hours to create doubt in their mind and their heart. Lord, watch over them. Thank you for another of them just came. It's not too late for somebody else to come. Some are still coming. Thank you for coming. 
Father, I just pray supernatural protection over each one in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want you to look at Pastor, this Pastor David here. He's going to guide. Yeah, let's hear it for these who have made this decision. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.